The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Steve Ward, who was a reference from uh, Mandy's uh, Ruffs and Johnny, who I had on a Twitter space not too long ago. Spent uh, the last hour reviewing some of his prior podcasts. I think this will be really quite interesting and useful, especially given the volatility that we're seeing uh, more recently here. Uh, Steve, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? And how did you get involved in the trading and coaching side of the business? Yeah, hi, Michael. And hi, everybody. So my name is Steve Ward. I'm a trader performance coach slash consultant. Work with traders and, and PMs and analysts at uh, hedge funds, banks, commodities trading houses, energy firms, prop trading groups, really across the whole spectrum of the markets. Newer traders right through to people who've been in the markets 25, 30 years plus. My sort of specialities are, I guess I would summarize it as looking at the role that the mind and the body, so the psychology and the physiology of risk-taking and decision-making and high performance for my clients. Uh, I've been doing that since uh, very early 2005. Prior to that, worked as a sport psychology coach to um, elite athletes and teams in about 33 sports all over the globe. And along the way, I've also had a, a little dabble in working with professional poker players on the European Pro Tour. Talk about that transition. First of all, why did you pivot to the, the financial market side from the, the sports side? Yeah, uh, it was purely luck. There was no career crafting or, or cultivating. It was purely an opportunity that arose, uh, a chance encounter on a sports psychology program that I was running that was attended by someone who was uh, an ex-professional tennis player, but was uh, currently in post as the head of performance and learning for a very large variety trading group. And he basically identified that they were doing a lot of really good things around facilitating high performance for their traders but they were doing nothing really around what he would, he kind of terms at times sort of just mindset. And he'd obviously come from a pro sports background, was very aware of the importance of mindset and wanted to create a program, uh, coaching, training to help the traders there to essentially to improve their performance. So it, uh, yeah, it, it purely by randomness. And then that was, uh, say, February 2005. Um, it ended up being quite a hefty piece of work in the end. And then really word of mouth, um, just my own interest led to me really uh, pivoting probably 
after the Winter Olympics in 2006, I probably made that move you know, into sort of markets full time. So when I, when I hear sports psychology, my mind goes to the psychology of winning, psychology of losing, overconfidence, you know, having to regain your confidence. Is that a, a, an overly simplistic way of thinking about that side of coaching and, and helping others that are you know, high performing athletes? Well, I think that there's certainly themes that are important. Uh, I mean, if I, if I look at my work, I guess what I'm trying to do probably in big chunks is as a part of my work, which is helping the trader, the PM, the analyst to kind of develop self-awareness, to understand themselves as a trader, as a PM, as an analyst, uh, understand strengths, weaknesses, values, goals, motivations, uh, what confidence is for them, what motivation is for them, uh, what high performance means for them, uh, helping them to bring all of that and align it to a, a trading or investing approach. Um, and matching those two up. So kind of, let's call that sort of a self-awareness piece. I think there's a large piece of my work, which is then around uh, self-improvement. So putting in processes for uh, goal setting, developing skill, um, evaluating, reflecting, gaining insights. Let's call that sort of a self-improvement piece. And then there's probably a, a piece, uh, and we maybe call this self-regulation to keep it sort of self-focused, which is, around having the skills and abilities, as, as you said, to, to navigate the highs and lows of the trading and investing experience. So to be able to manage the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations in the body, the urges and the impulses that show up um, at various times as the, the trader or the PM goes about executing their craft. So the motivation uh, part, I think, is interesting maybe to tease out a little bit, only because I would think Simplistically, a lot of people would say the motivation for every trader and PM is just to make more money. But you and I both know that's not really the the full story as to why people get into this business of investing. So when you deal with different clients of yours, what are the what are sort of the, the range of motivations in terms of that self awareness for why people enter the business and love the business? Yeah, I mean, and the key words in your question are the range. I think it's important to recognize that there is a range, and I mean, for some people, you know, it is they are primarily monetary driven. Um, that is the main overt motivation for many people. I think getting into the industry, that might be, again, a prime motivator. As people get into the industry and transition through it, I think sometimes people's motivations change. Uh, so that's important to recognize as well. Uh, some people enjoy the challenge. One of you know a, a client that comes to mind who is a, a phenomenal trader um, very much sees um, trading as, as a puzzle. Uh, he's a real, you know, competent puzzle solver in general, sees the market, sees trading as a, as a really complex puzzle, and he enjoys it from that perspective. I've had other people that have come into it from, from backgammon or from chess or from poker that maybe see it as like a game of risk reward, uh, which again, they very much enjoy. I guess maybe a, a slightly deeper, more um, esoterical level, I've got people that I coach that talk a lot about how the experience of trading and investing really allows them to test themselves, to um, uncover parts of themselves. Maybe I think, you know, trading and investing could be quite revealing about our character. And they, there's a, a sense of, you know, becoming a, a better person through the process of trying to become a better trader or a better investor. So that there's maybe that element for some people as well. For some people, there might be things to prove, you know, to themselves and and or to others and trading or investing is a vehicle for that. So I think there's a, there's a whole range 
of, of motivations. I think they can be transitional. For some people, probably, and this is important for sustainability, the ones that are maybe more intrinsically focused probably have greater longevity, a bit more robust and stable. The ones that are more extrinsic, you know, money, compensation, bonuses, um, they might be a driver. They might be important to some degree, but obviously the external motivations perhaps for longevity may be not quite as effective. And, you know, again, obviously um, in the coaching process, even if people said it's about the money uh, or it's about the compensation, I'd be curious about, you know, what the, what the money or the compensation actually allows them. So, you know, what, what is it that, you know, making that amount of money actually gives you other than the money itself? Quite often things like freedom comes up, autonomy, security, some of these more sort of intrinsic values-based type motivators. How does one's upbringing factor into the psychology of trading? And now, you know, just for some, some color on that, I grew up seeing my father, you know, love the investment business, working at Merrill Lynch and starting his own investment advisory firm, having his own hedge fund. His style was very different than, than mine. And part of that is just a different temperament and way of thinking about how to deal with uncertainty. But I think it's also sort of, for me personally, it's, it's my way of differentiating myself, even though it's obviously the same, same blood, right? They're mm-hmm. run between us, right? So how does, how does upbringing factor into motivation and process, whether it's somebody that's actually grew up in the business uh, or somebody that's new to it? Well, if we look at who we are today for yourself, for myself, and for everyone who's listening, we are predominantly the result of three forces. One of those will be disposition. So let's just call that personality to keep it simple. The other two forces are environment and then experience. So uh, essentially our, what we would call our learning history, um, our upbringing, uh, to keep it simple. So as we, as we navigate through life, we, obviously are, we are both consciously and unconsciously um, learning things about ourselves, about the world, about other people. We learn those lessons from our parents, from, from, from school, from universities, from sports clubs, music, wherever it might be. So you know, we're being shaped constantly. And, and again, likewise, we're being shaped in our early careers in the markets as well. So there's a lot of shaping going on. And obviously that will then play out um, in um, the markets because obviously we will form, for example, if we just look at risk um, alone, people will have different um, preferences for risk. So how somebody perceives risk, uh, even what a risk is, you know, thinking about volatility, for some people, volatility might be perceived as a risk, uh, a negative risk, for example, somebody else might perceive volatility as an opportunity. So, so risk perception can be partly dispositional, but also partly it will be down to the, uh, the environments we grew up in, then it will affect how we might manage our risk. So, you know, what we trade, how we trade it, whether we might, you know, making big outright directional bets or uh, maybe, we're, you know, trading pairs or relative value to try and manage that risk in, in a different way. And the markets we trade, the volatility, liquidity that's in those markets that we trade and our choices will probably be a factor. And then how we respond to um, and manage the consequences of the risk we've got. So how we deal with losses, again, is going to be a function of our disposition, but also, you know, what we've learned about uh, mistakes and so on. So for example, I, and I, I kind of can summarize this in a a very good client example, a recent one. I'm doing some work with a trader um, at the moment. And with that trader, we're looking at ways of being more effective at dealing with losses and navigating drawdown. And in a conversation recently, a few things came out, which I think are interesting to share. One is the fact that 
when he has a big loss or when he's going through a, a, a more severe drawdown, some of the feelings that he experiences include things like shame and guilt. And there can be a sense of embarrassment um, linked to the fact that in his mind, he's, you know, he's made a mistake. And probably with his level of skill, he shouldn't be making those mistakes. So, so we've got to have a, a process for navigating that. And not, now not all traders will have exactly the same response to a loss, but that's how he experiences it. Other people, it may be different. But the reason why I want to share this particular example is because, and it was interesting for me, is when he was growing up, the school system that he grew up in, uh, in his words, is one which only really focuses on the result. So all they really care about in, in the school system, and this was reflected in his household, was the result you get. And there wasn't really any um, balancing between the result and, for example, the effort that you put in or the way that you went about approaching the problem that you were trying to solve. So you either kind of you got it right or you didn't. You did well or you didn't. You're kind of a high achiever or you're not a high achiever. And all of that learning history is playing out in how he approaches the markets. And it's also reflecting on the emotions he experiences when he has to deal with the consequences of, of taking a loss and so on. So, so, so learning history definitely is going to play out. The beauty of learning history, of course, is that it's continually in process. So, you know, tomorrow, a part of today will be the sort of the latest chapter in our learning history. And so, we can't change our disposition, but of course, we can influence environment and experiences, i.e. learning. Uh, and so we can be thinking about you know, who we might want to become in the future and looking to shape that as we move forward as well. So almost like you know, thinking about our future learning history uh, can be useful. And I, I guess I've had the luxury of being at the elite sports end and at the elite trading and investing end. And people often ask me, you know, what is similar between the two? Well, I'll often take the counter view and go, well, what's different? And the difference is, obviously, in sport, in, in most sports, even something like cycling, where you compete a lot, you also have a lot of time when you're not competing. There are also dedicated training periods, and there are um, identifiable skills, and there are then processes put in place to train and develop those skills. So one of the questions that's interesting, I think, for traders and, and for investors to be thinking about is, you know, what is trading skill? What is investing skill? Because once we start to think about them as skill-based activities, then essentially we can start to look at, you know, what are the component pieces? What are the component skills that make up successful trading or investing? And then we can get to the question of, um, and now how do we train them? The challenge is always going to be, certainly from my side, when I think about it just in terms of the mental skills, when I was working in elite sport, we would often train mental skills off-season and then work to implement and refine during the in-season. Of course, for my trading and, and investing clients, we don't have luxury of off-season. So any training we're doing in-season. And what it means particularly is we probably have to just bear in mind that in terms of bandwidth, there's less time, energy, and effort available to do, let's call it the skill development once we're kind of in, in the process of performing. But we can still do some. Uh, so, for example, I think, you know, an obvious skill can be like, you know, knowledge acquisition. So learning, training, uh, coaching can be a skill acquisition. 
both mental, emotional, physical, technical, and tactical. Uh, so they're always available for people. Um, then I think, you know, a very powerful piece of skill development, and this is true now in the sports world, is performance analysis and, and then reflection on the, on the data that you collect, looking for insights and feeding that forward into, into action. Things like preparation and planning can be combined with mental simulation of what market scenarios might play out, how you might respond. Uh, if you've made good decisions during the course of a day, you could review and replay those uh, mentally or via screen recording at the end of the day. So I think that, that there are a number of practices that are available to traders and, and PMs to put in place. And then it's really just trying to work out you know, the dosage. You know, how am I going to fit that into my, my week or over the course of the month? How might I plan that? recognizing the fact that unlike for an athlete, we're probably not going to get, you know, days at a time where we can just go into training mode. We're not maybe going to get hours a day when we can do that. But, you know, can we find slots per day, slots per week to work on some of the mental, the emotional, the physical, the technical, the tactical, and maybe the knowledge-based skills that, uh, that we want to work on? But, but I think that there is a key difference there also, right? Which is that, okay, so you, you, you train, you physically are getting stronger, you're getting faster, you're getting more aware of different scenarios. There's, you know, there, there's an actual impact on, you know, the likelihood of, of you performing better with every single rep of some dumbbell, right? But when it comes to this domain of investing, um, it's not as clear the link between, you know, the results and, learning more about markets, right? Because there's always a degree of randomness and and luck and error and small sample bias, whereas there's a there's a tighter link between effort and 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 result in most other domains, I'd argue. Yeah, no, I would agree. You know, the in the short term, particularly, you know, what I do today to improve my trading skill and what I do tomorrow may not show up the next day, the next week, maybe even the next month, maybe even this year. Uh, and that is always the challenge. If I'm playing the violin, I think, you know, music is a very good one as a counter argument. You know, if I want to get good at the violin. It's a very strong correlation between um, how much practice I do and the quality of that practice and then the quality of my performance um, in trading and investing. Unfortunately, that, that, that correlation obviously is, is less strong. And this is, this is often the challenge in people finding the motivation maybe to do that work. Obviously, it's, all, it's easier for all of us if we do something now and see a return straight away. But allocating time and effort to a, a skill practice, knowledge gaining, whatever it might be in trading, investing, without knowing we're going to get an immediate return or what that return might even look like uh, is, of course, difficult. Yeah, I think we've got a sufficient observational data to see that the people that are doing that type of work ongoing are increasing their own chances of success. But you're right, we may not have the tangibility um, always to reinforce that, again, particularly in the short term. Yeah, and that, and that obviously relates to you know, uncertainty and how people respond to uncertainty. It's not just uncertainty in markets, it's uncertainty in whether in the small sample your skill set in analyzing markets is going to matter. It might over multiple rule the die, but you know, we all know that anything can happen in the very short term and cause drawdowns and you know, impact one's psychology. Now, I want to go back a little bit to the point you mentioned about self-awareness. It's hard enough to know somebody, uh, let alone somebody knowing themselves, right? And it's, it's, to me, this is always kind of the, the challenge, I would think, with you know, a psychiatrist. It's, it's almost like garbage in, garbage out. You know, you've got to get information from the client, but you don't know if the client's even assessing 
you know, the, uh, the kind of baseline data of who they are in the right way to then come up with a conclusion. So talk about for the audience, how you um, go about that process of not only learning the psychological makeup of a trader, but even knowing if what the trader is telling you is, is accurate in terms of the way they themselves are, are trying to frame themselves. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah. This is, as you say, this is the challenge of, of self-awareness. Is, is, uh, as, a, as, a, as a coach, you are ideally hoping they've already got sufficient high levels of self-awareness in, in your clients when they come to you so that what you're getting from them has some kind of validity. So, uh, And there's a little bit of a leap of faith in that initially. I think once you work with a person uh, for a few sessions, you get a good idea about that. But, but, but what I do personally, uh, where I can, is I will obviously speak with the client, got quite a relatively well-formed set of questions. So we do a, what we call a biographical inquiry, quite in-depth. Hear it from their words. That, that is very, very important. And then what I like to do is I will probably speak with, um, if they're on a trading desk, we'll have, they'll have a head of desk. So I'll try and get some input from the head of desk, maybe from a peer, so, so a colleague, someone they're working with, and then perhaps somebody from kind of the firm's management, maybe from in risk, maybe from in HR or talent. So I'll try and get three or four different perspectives as well. So I'll do interview the trader, interview people around the trader, above, below, sideways, and so on. If they've got a junior that they work with, I'll probably interview the junior as well. And that gives me some different perspectives on how other people see them. And then we might see some, some similarities and we might see some differences. Not that either is, is better or worse. They're all just perceptions. Ultimately, I can form my own judgments based on my experience. But again, it's perception. And then what I will try and get, if, the, if it's available, is to get some trading data. Because trading data, decision-making data, will reveal patterns in people's behavior, which again, may be supported by their own level of self-awareness and or not, and likewise those of others. But if we get those three areas covered, if we can tick off self-awareness from the person, external perspective from those who know them well, and if we can get some actual objective trading data as well, put all of that together, and then we probably start to get a relatively rounded and hopefully accurate picture of the person. I'm going to make the assumption that the data, which is probably most telling, is data around what actions are being taken in different volatility regimes, right? which will relate to drawdowns and you know, the uncertainty that wildly gyrating prices can have on not just a portfolio, but one's you know, sort of mental state and mental health. Are there any common threads that you've seen um, in terms of how the very good traders respond to volatility versus the very bad traders. I have to assume that ultimately that's probably the the thing that differentiates people the most. Well, I think the two most important words and probably also the least helpful words 
uh, in my sort of branch of psychology are it depends. So, you know, different traders will respond to volatility differently. And it's not always better and or worse. What's important to understand when I'm working with clients, I'm trying to help people to understand themselves and to understand, you know, what volatility means for them, how they might respond to it. What's their perception of volatility? You know, is higher volatility for them a, you know, do they see that as being useful, less useful, somewhere in between? Uh, How does that relate to their general trading style and approach? What does it mean in the context they're actually operating within? So there's a number of factors to really to understand. And then based on all of that, then the person hopefully, and I've had a conversation with a client prior to, to our call today, where we're discussing obviously what's been going on recently. And again, we're trying to, or what I'm trying to do is help them to understand, you know, what is the context in the markets right now as it relates to you, what you're trying to achieve, your risk personality, your risk profile, the firm that you're operating in, and what you want to achieve in, in this case uh, by the end of the quarter and therefore also towards the end of the year. So you've got to kind of look at the context and then we can start to think about, you know, what is the, the useful thing or not to do. And the answer is it will vary from person to person. But I think if we look at it, if we go ignore and not ignore, if we push to one side the psychology and go a level deeper and look at it biologically, what we know in general is that volatility is a stress response stimulator. So in most people, when we get increasing volatility, we tend to get within the central nervous system an increasing um, of response, and therefore the stress levels go up. And again, for some people, that can be very much a positive. For other people, that can become maybe uh, not so helpful. But so biologically, we can understand that, that it's a, if we think about stress as being cumulative, it can come from many different areas. If there's increasing volatility, then our kind of capacity for stress, our threshold, is, is kind of being, some of that is being taken up by the increased volatility. So we need to bear in mind that there may be an impact for some people just at the biological level in their ability to, to function well if the volatility becomes you know, so great that actually for them it becomes very stressful, stressful in this terms uh, as a negative stressor. I've got other people I know who literally you know, pray all year round for volatility in the markets to be, to be high because that's where they function at their best, either by disposition or by skill and training. So, you know, one person's volatility is a stressor, for somebody else, it's an opportunity. So it depends, you know, is, is, is the coaching answer. I had uh, put out a tweet saying the good thing about this market is that the stress will kill you before the bank runs do. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's accurate. But the, um, but, but this point about the stress management at the point, I think is, is, is important, right? Because there's this other underappreciated aspect, I think, by newbie traders, which is that this has a real physical toll. It's not just mental. I mean, you know, the mental part of it is challenging in of itself. Uh, but the fact that, you know, there's a release of cortisol, right, uh, from every mm-hmm. sort of stressful situation, you know, it makes people, honestly, you know, it, it kind of screws up their their uh, their sense of, of rewarding just mentally, right? I mean, you get kind of numb to other life's joys when, uh, you're constantly worried about losses and you're seeing it day to day as long as the market's open. So part of this, I have to assume, is also for you is trying to write somebody's mentality, not just around markets, but how to view life in a more positive way, especially when you're in these kind of stressful market dynamics. Yeah, I mean, we can't ignore the fact the mind and the body are connected. 
So, so you know, my work is really what we would call kind of psychophysiological. So it's it's a very much a mind and body approach. Uh, the mind impacts the body, the body impacts the mind, the brain itself, 2% of our body weight, 20 to 25% of our calorific consumption. Uh, it's embodied, sits inside the body. So our risk-taking, our decision-making is influenced by the, by the physical state of the body. We know that people that are fatigued become more risk-averse over time. Uh, stress response really is interesting because there's two time frames to consider for stress. One is what we call an acute stress response, i.e. An, a kind of an in-the-moment, short-term stress response, which actually the body-brain-mind system is well adapted for. As humans, we, we're good at that. Uh, and we might need that on you know, high volatility, demanding trading days. I had a few clients on Monday that contacted me at the end of the day, very demanding days high adrenaline, um, lots of ups and downs. Thankfully, most of them did, did, did very well, uh, but very draining. So, and that's the stress response system, kind of you know, activating, energizing, focusing, helping people to perform at their best in a, in a very you know, kind of a challenging situation. If on the flip side, someone in drawdown, which is also stressful, but as it drags on over time, we shift from this kind of acute, uh, performance-enhancing stress response into something that's called chronic stress. And this is this kind of ongoing, slower-moving um, feeling. And you're right, you know, cortisol builds up in the body. Great work from, from John Coates, who wrote the book, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, showing, you know, as that, as that chronic um, stress increases, cortisol uh, in, in traders um, increases, and again, the output of that in terms of trading behavior is typically um, a bias towards risk aversion. So it really plays out. But of course, what cortisol also does, it's a stress hormone and it impacts our health and well-being. Again, if we're having excessive cortisol over time, it's catabolic. It breaks the body down. You know, it might start with, you know, we get a bit of a sniff, a cold, can turn into a virus, can become worse than that over time. So, you know, there is a, there is a health and well-being impact um, as we're exposed to the stresses of trading, which is why, you know, psychologically, but also physiologically, part of my role is helping my clients to develop mechanisms that make them more robust to the forces of stress. And that we also importantly see things like well-being, which can be seen by some people as a bit of a softer skill. Uh, as it used to be in sport and, and indeed in the military, which is now really becoming more central um, and actually probably um, inextricably linked to being able to sustain high performance in the markets over time. So, you know, we're definitely shifting. So, yeah, I think for traders, it's important to think about process, you know, how I do what I do, my market approach, preparation, execution, evaluation, all of that piece. And then to think about, you know, sort of two other areas to do some work on and be thinking about, which are the psychological, the mind piece, but also that physiology and the body piece. And, and, and then to kind of build habits, routines, practices, which link those three things together, but to see the mind and body, not as two separate entities, really, but as a, as a, as a part of the trading process, if that makes sense. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I just think it's it's, and you know this better than than a lot of people seeing a lot of different clients in this, but it's easier said than done, right? So, so there's a lot of studies that show that you know discipline, for example, is like a muscle, right? It exhausts, and the mm-hmm. more the more decisions you have to make in a day, and when you're a trader and looking at markets, you could be making a whole lot of decisions. It makes it harder to be disciplined, right? and you know, which means people end up going to comfort food and, and doing things which are not healthy. God knows yeah. I do myself, right? So. Yeah. I think you use the word correctly, right? The key thing is to develop the right habits, but presumably it's a lot easier to build the right habits when you don't already have the cortisol built up in the system. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a challenge of, um, I mean, once we start to get high levels of stress and or high levels of fatigue and high stress often leads to high fatigue because when we're stressed, obviously the, the nervous system is running at a higher level of gas. So we're burning more fuel per, per minute as such. So we start to fatigue more quickly. When we're stressed and fatigued, we're really just trying to, you know, survive the day, you know, trying to sort of just get through. There's not the resources, there's no bandwidth left to really start thinking about, you know, building new behaviors, building new habits. It's why it's very hard to make change. I find this with my trading class. If they're having a really tough time, maybe the markets have changed and need to adapt their trading style or approach. If they've been through a period of drawdown or struggle, the paradox or the challenge is the fact that they're already fatigued and stressed. And it's really hard then to kind of, you know, find where we're going to get the resources because change requires you to build new behaviors. It's an active, energizing process. But if you're fatigued and stressed, you don't have the bandwidth or the, or the capacity to do that process with. So uh, it can be difficult. So ideally, of course, what we would want, and again, this is where sport and trading are very different, is we try and find periods uh, where we can build the habits so we've got them for when we need them. And this is why, you know, often in my work, what I find with clients is if I do sessions for grads or for, for newer traders, they don't always really appreciate the the real demands of, of trading and investing in the markets in terms of how it's actually going to feel when you lose money, uh, real money, big sums of money, when you go through a tough drawdown. And, and so it's quite hard for them sometimes to invest in the time and effort to almost front load and learn the skills up front. So they don't really realize that they're going to need them until they actually need them. So, uh, but I think where possible, you know, it is important that we, this is part of my, I guess, approaches. We recognize in advance what the challenges are, what they might be. And as much as we can, we build a, a front end, which has a robust process, has good psychological habits and skills training, has good process around physiology, things like sleep, exercise, nutrition, recovery, uh, could include breath work practice and so on. And we try and build it. I always think about like, like a funnel, Michael. So you kind of have a funnel where at the front end, it's kind of, we want to have a wide um, entry to the funnel, lots of good practices. And then sort of the two lines that are converging down to kind of what's left over, which is the trading experience. And if we can do enough work at the front end, we can't, um, eradicate 
the challenges of the trading experience, but we can certainly reduce it. And then we just manage what's left over. But if we don't do build the good practices, build the process, develop the psychology, work on the physiology at the front end, then we're going to have more to manage at the back end. That's the payoff. So, um, and, and the reality is probably it's work that's being done continuously throughout a trader's career over time as they gain experience, gain awareness, go through more challenges and, and, and so on. Have you seen any um, interesting research or, or trends around how short-termism and attention spans are making it harder to be a, a good trader? I mean, you know, I've, I've referenced that before, but there was a Microsoft study, a study done in the late 90s. Um, somehow, however, they tested attention spans. They found that the average attention span was like 12 seconds back then. And then they reran the study like a decade ago, and it went from 12 seconds to nine seconds, which means most people in this Twitter space don't even remember my name. Right. <laughs> conversation. But my point is that, you know, we're in an environment where increasingly there's just shorter and shorter attention spans. And I have to imagine that makes the psychological management part of this business harder uh, because the shorter your time frame, the more likely you are getting not only whipsawed, but but responding off of noise that may not mean anything yeah. to long term results. Yeah. It's funny because I literally just did a, a session last week for a, a hedge fund client around the topic of attention uh, and focus. So it's, uh, so it's fresh in my mind. So there's a great quote, a guy called B. Allen Wallace. I think his book's called The Attention Revolution. And in there somewhere is a quote, which is somewhere along the lines of, uh, without good attention, you can't do anything well. And coming from sport, Many years ago, you know, attention, concentration, focus, uh, and the three, and they're, 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 they're three different things, by the way. They're not the same thing. So, attention is sort of like the resource. Uh, focus is the ability to, to kind of direct that attention to where you want it to be. And then, concentration is how long you can sustain the focus where you want it to be. So, they, can, they are three uh, integrated but different elements. But it, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, whether we're reading, researching, watching the market, uh, making a decision at any given moment, what our performance is going to be influenced by the quality of our attention slash focus slash concentration. So it does have a payoff. I think it affects different people in different ways, depending upon your um, trading time frame, your style and so on. So it kind of impact you differently. But I've heard from a number of clients, and I probably started hearing this Oh, I would say 2010 onwards, I had an increasing number of clients telling me that they had noticed or their partners had noticed or people that know them well had noticed that their attention spans were getting increasingly shorter. So it, uh, but again, a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist, they, they call this the, the poverty of attention, which is kind of um, we are experiencing as a result of what is essentially a competition for our attention, both external devices, technology, and so on, but also internal, our own mind. So, uh, so yes, it's a challenge. It definitely has an impact. The good news is attention is a trainable resource. Focus can be trained and concentration can be trained. So for some of my clients, if we identify again, that for them, attention is a challenge, then there are practices that they can do uh, should they again be willing to to invest the time and effort to improve that attention, um, and and also as a result, um, awareness, interestingly, which is important um, in their trading and investing. So yeah, but it, but again, you know, this is a it's like sleep. You know, many years ago, people they worked, they got tired, they went to bed, and they slept. 
Uh, now we need to read, the, you know, there are books about how to sleep. There are courses you can go on about learn how to sleep well. Uh, it's, a, it's a natural function, attention and focus, really. These are core human functions. Uh, and now we're having to think about uh, training it and developing it and managing it and reading it, going on a course to improve it. Again, as a nature, uh, as, a, as a consequence, obviously, is how the, uh, the world's evolved around us. Let's talk about behavioral biases that you see most often or more, most common. So, I mean, I think like you, a big fan of behavioral finance, not just sort of the classic studies by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, but uh, like James Montier right, mm-hmm. had, was a phenomenal thinker when it came to behavioral investing and yeah. psychology and trading. Yeah. Um, are there are there certain biases that you see that are becoming more prevalent certain heuristics like a little heuristic confirmation bias recency bias i i myself get the sense that which kind of relates to the short-termism and attention spans recency bias is at an all-time high everyone's just extrapolating out the very short term to the, to the you know tomorrow um, any kind of interesting observations there with your clients yeah well i would agree recency i think is a strong one that plays out um Interestingly, even my 13-year-old son had a conversation with me recently about his observation of recency bias in people. I, I hadn't taught him that, by the way. He'd obviously just picked it up somewhere. So if 13-year-olds are talking to me about recency bias, then it's probably, um, it's probably happening out there. So that, that's interesting. Yeah, I think loss aversion, again, I think, you know, it, much as it's a common one, I think it's a key one because, you know, if you look at the stats and the data in, in, and we see it in, in the, the data from my clients, you know, um, taking losses is still the, the fact that that's difficult for a lot of people. So I say loss aversion uh, in that one at the top end, overconfidence slash complacency that comes when you're on a winning run. I've seen a few traders at the back end of last year had really good years, but towards the end of the year with big pinels behind them, got prone to overconfidence, bit of complacency. So I think, you know, at, at the other end of the spectrum, they're equally as uh, damaging. I mean, when I, when I started working trading 2005, February, I think there were probably, I'm going to have a stab at, let's say, 10 to 15 identifiable kind of, you know, in the common language type biases. I remember reading an article a few years back where they said that at that point there was 108 now kind of recognized uh, biases. So I think the challenge with behavioral biases is twofold. One is there's so many of them, like at any given point in time, if I don't get out of a trade, is that because I had loss aversion or is it the endowment effect and I'm stuck in the trade because I own, I'm in the position I've been in it for a while? Is it sunk cost because I put a lot of time and effort into researching the trade and I don't want to kind of now get out of it because I've invested all the time and effort? Is it a combination of all three? Uh, is it a fact that actually I lost money on the last trade, so I'm just more sensitive to losing on this particular trade? It's quite hard sometimes to really distinguish as to what bias is playing out uh, in real time. It's quite hard to spot them in ourselves, which is also a challenge. So I kind of I have a, an interest in behavioral bias, but I have a challenge with it in terms of how do we... I think it's really useful looking at market behavior. But for individuals, it's challenging. But where I do use it is I have a process that we call behavioral risk management. And what that basically is, it sounds uh, probably a, a bit sexier than it really is. But what it is essentially about is as a trader or a PM, it's about understanding where, when are the conditions and what are the reasons why you might make a suboptimal decision. And that might be because we realize that actually you have problems taking losses. And let's just keep it simple. Let's say that is down to loss aversion. 
once we start to look at the behaviors that are essentially reducing your, your market returns, what we can start to do then is go, right, there's two things we can do about this. Is it possible to mitigate that bias? So is there something within the process that we can um, refine or add in, sometimes maybe even take out, that can help us to reduce exposure to the bias? So we could reduce maybe the frequency of it, maybe even the magnitude. And let's do that if we can. And at the back end, if we can't mitigate it in some way through some kind of process by enhancing your decision-making process, then we want to have some tools so we can recognize it and to manage it in real time. And so we kind of build a framework around that. Now, as a very general rule, we, we, it's probably fairly true to accept that most people are more prone to bias if stress levels are high, if they are fatigued, if they are working to very short timeframes in their decision-making, if ambiguity and uncertainty are high. So there are some forces that might um, increase, amplify our proneness to bias, again, which we could put process in place to try to manage that. And I think if you, the reading and research piece, you know, kind of understanding the human condition, understanding the trading and investing condition and kind of what biases are out there that could play out, reflect back on your own trading. Again, this is where the trading data is so powerful because the trading data can help you to identify uh, the behaviors and then we can maybe form some hunches as to what the bias might be behind that with a bit of investigation. So, but yes, but I would say loss aversion, overconfidence at the high end, recency, availability. Again, I think it's a really common one that, that plays out. I think, you know, endowment and sunk cost, again, play out for people in terms of their losses. So it's, um, and, and, and all others, Michael, really. Yeah. And as you know, right, the other, the other part of behavioral finance is the idea that just because you're aware of the bias doesn't mean you can do anything to change it. Well, I, I saw Kahneman speak. Many years ago now, he was doing a speaking tour when he wrote, um, I must have been four or five years ago now. Uh, and he, even he said, look, he spent his, this is his life works. So he spent his entire, you know, or the majority of, it, of his kind of professional life uh, investigating human behavior and bias and so on. And he still falls prone to them. Now, when I came away from that talk, I'm thinking, this is the person who's literally life work. He knows he's inside out. He's done the research. He's read the research. He knows all the people you need to know, understands it more than anybody can understand it. And yet he still falls prone to it. And I think that that for me was a really key moment because it just shows the knowledge is useful. And this is where I think, and Kahneman talks about how, you know, it's easy to spot a bias in someone else than it is in ourselves. Uh, and that's how we can start to kind of maybe, you know, be aware of the biases is, is by doing that exercise. But that's why I think if we just understand what the biases are that may play out, then if nothing else, we can start to think about, you know, within the process, how we might just reduce our exposure to them. Uh, a bit like, you know, if we understand as humans that there are many diseases and things that we potentially could catch, it doesn't mean we are going to catch all of them. But if we adopt healthy lifestyle practices, um, at the front end, then we can reduce our exposure to and or our ability to, to manage if we do get them, any of what might you know, come our way in terms of, of disease and illness going forward. And I think about biases in that same way. You know, let's, kind of, let's understand what's out there and what the, what the impact could be, what the, what the illnesses and diseases can be. Let's develop some preventative practices up front, but let's make sure we've also got some things in place to be able to identify the disease and to manage it 
um, if we do happen to to kind of catch it. So it's uh, yeah, that sort of medical model for me. I think you know probably fits quite nicely around sort of human behaviour and biases as well. Maybe this is a naive question on my end, but I know you focus on this idea of high performing, high performance, high performance. Most people will think in terms of actual dollars and cents. To me, it's much more mental, right? High performance. Um, But what is it that people seek out from performance coaches, kind of psychiatrists? Is it is it a degree of comfort therapy? Are they looking for someone to vent to or? Are they actively trying to change something about their personality that they find is problematic in terms of their own work? What is the underlying motivation for a lot of people that go to you? All of those is is the answer. So for some people, it's a chance. I mean, I had a, a client that tell me a few years ago, we did one coaching session as, as a part of a program. And at the end of it, he said, this is the first time in my trading career, 10 years plus this is where I genuinely feel that someone sat down, listened to what I've got to say, and I've been able to kind of have a very honest, open discussion about my performance with somebody who kind of gets it, um, but from outside the firm as such. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. So, you know, like an, an external perspective, uh, someone to vent, that's definitely part of the process. Sometimes allowing people just to, you know, tell you their thoughts, their feelings about themselves, others, the markets, it can be very cathartic. Um, people sometimes genuinely have identified in themselves that there's a behavior which is getting in the way of their, you know, maximizing their market returns. They want some help with, you know, essentially changing that behavior. Some people have got a particular goal they might want to try and achieve, you know, get to the next level as they would see it in their trading and investing. Might involve some behavior change, improving some performance elements, might involve taking more risk. And they want help with that. Other people sometimes are just having a really tough time. You know, they're in drawdown. They've just suffered a big loss, and they're just looking for someone to help them to kind of get out of where they're out, uh, where they're where they're at, and to get somewhere better. Um, for some people, it's it's you know trying to reconcile the stresses and strains of the job with with life. So, uh, you know, kind of finding that the right way to to manage themselves as maybe a PM, but also as a partner and also as a parent and maybe as a friend and, and, and so on and, and getting that piece right. Yeah, for some people, it's about they're already doing well and they want to be doing even better or they want to sustain that going forward. How do I keep being successful over time? That's an interesting puzzle to try and solve as well. So yeah, a real wide range of reasons. And um, when I started in 05, you know, I had people who, who came to coaching but were saying to me, don't tell anybody I've been to see you. You know, it was, it was like sports psychology was in the olden days where, you know, people knew they needed it, but they didn't want anyone else to know they were having it. It was really seen as a, a, with a negative perception. Uh, whereas now, thankfully, both in sport, military, in, in trading, investing, there's a much healthier um, and much more kind of performance enhancement uh, focused mindset around coaching. So definitely seen for many people as a positive process, which is good. Uh, Steve, what's the best way for people to, to find your work? Yeah, probably um, two main ways, performanceedgeconsulting.co.uk, which is my website. Then if people are on LinkedIn, just look look me up on LinkedIn. I think that's a a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Folks that are on this, I have uh, Dan Gardner up in about uh, eight minutes, who's co-authored a number of books, has worked with Phil Tetlock on Super Forecasters. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Steve. And again, this will be an edited podcast soon enough. Cheers, everybody. Yeah, all the best. Cheers. Bye-bye. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. 
the views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.